and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game and currently can't take its eyes off the Olympics. I'm Kevin Day, he is Kieran Maguire. Think of us as the mixed triathlon relay team. (laughs) Even though we're both men, I can't swim, he can't run. Um, although you are doing a bit of serious cycling tomorrow, Kieran, aren't you? Yes, yeah, we're, we're recording this on uh, Saturday afternoon, so I'm, I've been uh, I've been asked to do a thirty mile cycle tomorrow. So I thought I better do that. You're absolutely right. I can't run. I've uh, I'm down to one working leg, um, and uh, yeah, clearly with COVID around, you, you can't actually get anybody to uh, fix the other one. No, that's true. Yeah, not any, is it the Baroness that's asked you to cycle thirty miles? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. There's, uh, there's 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 something happening at John Lewis apparently, and I've got to uh, collect something for it. <laughs> that's uh, a little insight into the life in Sussex there for you, everybody. <laughs> um, it's questions day, but we do have a couple of new stories uh, to bring you, Kieran. Um, this one has slightly gone under the radar, except I think in the London press. Uh, It's a potential takeover at West Ham by a consortium who insist they already have the money and are ready to go at a moment's notice. Yes, um, this story is sort of broke over the the past seven days. It's a company called PAI Capital. And I I know we we have been asked by some West Ham fans to, you know, can we do a bit of digging about them? And the, the only thing I can find is that they... The company appears to have been set up earlier this year uh, with with ten thousand pounds worth of shares. Now, that's not really helping us. You know, there's they they, they could have access to uh, you know big tranches of money from elsewhere. So that's not necessarily a, a down a negative issue. Um, the company's chief exec appears to be a guy called Philip Beard who. Does have history in the world of football. He used to be the uh, Queens Park Rangers chief exec. He also ran the O2. He was also involved uh, with the uh, with the Olympic Stadium, so he, he's familiar with the area. Um, so what's happened is uh, it looks as if PAI Capital have made some sort of offer of around about four hundred million pounds. Uh, I don't think it's been a formal offer. It's sort of been, uh, yeah, would you accept this? That has been rejected out of hand uh, by David Sullivan. He thinks it's derisory. Um, he can point out that uh, apparently Red Bull tried to buy West Ham a few years ago when they first moved into the stadium for $650 million. If you take a look at Karen Brady's personal website, she says that they've, they've turned down offers of £800 million historically. Though my concern, and this is, is two things, first of all, exactly what are you buying? if you buy West Ham, because they don't own mm. the stadium. So are you just buying the badge? Now, in, mm. in which case, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds for the, for the badge seems an awful lot of money. Um, and secondly, there was uh, some form of report in the Telegraph last weekend that um, if the, the plans for the stadium and, and the, the prospective owners say that there's been an opportunity missed to regenerate around the uh, the area of the London Stadium, and you know, certainly as somebody that's that lived in Manchester for most of my life, um, you know the the, the Etihad uh, has benefited from redevelopment. Um, they they seem they seem convinced that they can generate uh, some you know jobs and and 
and prospects for people there, which is is to be encouraged. Um, but in the report in the Telegraph, it would said the proposals for the changes to the stadium to to give it a bit of atmosphere, which you know th- th- there is no doubt that it's lacking. Um, those would cost uh, you know tens of millions of pounds, and it could be the taxpayer yet again who would be footing the bill. Yeah, I don't know enough about the original contract by which West Ham got that stadium. But is there a scenario whereby new owners could one day own a stadium outright? Is there a, is there a price that they could pay for that? Um, that yeah, never never say never in business. Uh, the, the the stadium is owned by I think it's a company called L Twenty or E Twenty, um, and. Uh, they presently rent it out to West Ham. If you take a look at uh, the, uh, the, the, I think it's is it the, Lung, the London Legacy Development Corporation is the, yep. is the name. Um, if you take a look at their accounts; they're horrendous. You know, they are they are losing money, uh, uh, you know, hand over fist. So, if, uh, if if somebody came up with a with a decent offer to take the stadium off their hands, which isn't too embarrassing, from the taxpayer's perspective, um, it could be welcomed. And the the, the merits of having a, uh, uh, a landlord um, are, from West Ham's point of view, they pay next to nothing in rent. I mean, the, rent, the rental fee is, you know, two and a half, three million pounds a year. If you, if you think think about how much interest Spurs are paying on their stadium, it's, 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 a, it's a huge multiple of that. Um, so West Ham currently benefit from low rentals, but it's it's not really their stadium because they they are literally tenants for twenty five days a year, and, and that's about as far as it goes. If uh, if if, if uh, the new owners were able to negotiate with uh, London Legacy Development Corporation or whoever is it, the ultimate owner, uh, with a view to buying the stadium, then that that could be a positive. But you know, if that's going to be on top of paying. Golden Sullivan, you know, hundreds of millions. Uh, I just don't really see how that would be uh, feasible from a financial point of view, because unless you are regularly uh, competing in the Champions League, uh, West Ham simply wouldn't be generating enough money to, to justify that type of outlay. Yeah, and I, I'm not the first person, especially in London, to point out the irony in David Sullivan's comments this week that uh, there's not enough money in the world for them to sell West Ham because they they own West Ham for romantic reasons, not business reasons. So obviously it was romance that moved them away from one of the most iconic stadiums in the English history to a soulless bowl. Um, but that's an interesting comment. What's in it for them? Do you think Sullivan, Gold and Brady would be happy to, to sell if the offer was right? Uh, certainly, certainly. It, it, it's not a case of not, not selling. You know, I... Uh, if, if I if I go back to the start of my working life, I, I think I was actually working for David Sullivan um, back in the early eighties. He, he's he's a businessman. He, kn- he knows the value of a pound. And, and you know, if, if somebody uh, puts forward uh, an offer which he believes uh, is fair to him, then he will take it. And, and he has been very successful historically at uh, yeah, at at extracting money and extracting value from his own businesses. So are you implying that David Sullivan owned the gay sex shop that you used to work in? Uh, I think he may have done. It was he wasn't exclusively gay. Um, you oh, know, okay, we, right. You know, we, uh, we 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 catered for all sorts, and yeah. by all sorts, I mean all sorts. Yeah, in a, in a way, we all work for David Sullivan, don't we? <laughs> uh, uh, Saudi Arabia. This and this one is a story that's been met with uh, humour more than. Uh, 
any seriousness, and you can understand why. Saudi Arabia are considering a joint bid with Italy for the 2030 World Cup, a tournament that Boris Johnson promised would be coming home. But um, with the shenanigans at Wembley a few weeks ago, is that is looking very unlikely. Uh, UEFA executives still putting their hair back and knotting their ties after being knocked over in the rush by pissed up cokeheads trying to get in for nothing. Um, <laughs> but why Saudi Arabia and Italy? Well, um, first of all, FIFA. Uh, FIFA these days are keen on bids from more than one nation. They, they've seen what happened in uh, in Brazil in, in 2014, they, sorry, 20, 2016, 2014, uh, and the losses that were made there. The, it was similar in South Africa in 2010. I mean, I was, I was fortunate enough to, to go to the, the FIFA World Cup in South Africa. Fantastic. Yeah, fantastic few weeks, no doubt about it. Uh, but I, I went back to uh, Cape Town with the Baroness uh, a couple of years ago, and I said, "Oh, yeah, I should, I'd love to go past the stadium again." And, and mm. it was just covered in weeds. You know, mm. so you know, what, what's this this idea of um, a, a FIFA World Cup uh, creating a, a legacy in terms of sporting opportunity and health and so on? Uh, tends to be overplayed, and also the, the 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 glossy brochures, sort of effectively the timeshare brochures that are put together by the management consultants on behalf of the bidding companies, always tend to be full of numbers which are highly unrealistic. And actually, normally the the, the hosting country loses a fortune. Um, so, what FIFA want to do is is to spread the risk. That's why in uh, 2026 the World Cup's being split between. Uh, Mexico, the USA, and Canada. Mm. So Saudi Arabia and Italy, I, I know some people might be a bit sniffy about it, but I can assure you if, if you're going from uh, you know Montreal to San Francisco, that's far further than, than Riyadh to uh, uh, Milan. So you know, from a geographical point of view, uh, it does still have some merit. I think from a uh, from a pitching point of view, it would be difficult to justify Saudi Arabia hosting the, the World Cup itself in 2030, given that in 2022, it's going to be hosted by another Middle Eastern country in the form of Qatar. So mm. this is a way of uh, circumventing the, the, the sort of the uh, sort of the, the, the unsaid rule that you, you, you need to spread it around the continents. Um, so the the relations between Italian football and Saudi Arabia are good. Um, any, in particular the sense that, any particular reason why? Well, the Italian Super Cup, for example, that takes place in Riyadh. So oh. you know they they they've already established relationships. Saudi Arabia is also in the process of setting up a broadcasting company to rival uh, Bayin, and I believe that the their first uh, their, their first uh, set of rights is going to be for Syria. So clearly, you know, there's there's some form of relationship which is positive between the two countries in terms of football. That can't be said, of course, in terms of you know, Saudi Arabia in the Premier League because you know, mm. we, we've got this, mm. this ongoing dispute. Uh, Saudi Arabia realises that um, it's, seen the, it's seen the success of Dubai as a, as a hub uh, and uh, as a way of uh, generating you know, some positive publicity. So it's trying to go down that sports route. We've got the Anthony Joshua fight, which is coming up. Formula One, um, they are also making, uh, you know, making sort of uh, uh, you know, 
fluttering eyelids at Infantino at FIFA. Um, so I, I believe that they were uh, very keen on the expanded Club World Cup to, to rival the Champions League um, and also potentially to be providing some form of support for, Kevin, a global, a global Nations League, the competition that we always seem to forget, but it's it's still a, an international competition. So um, there are that there are certainly uh, developments taking place between the Saudi authorities or the Saudi football authorities and senior people within football. Hmm. I can just about imagine the look on the Baroness's face when you suggested a trip to an empty stadium in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> the look on her face when it turned out to be not only empty, but covered in weeds and dilapidated. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and Kieran, good news for your mob, as Danny Dyer would say, good news for your mob, as uh, Brighton have made an historic amount of money this weekend, Kieran, an historic amount of money. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, the sale, the sale of Ben White, um, who uh, who we signed from Leeds, apparently, according to Leeds fans. Um, uh, yeah, we, we've sold him for £50 million. So I... I am at some point in time going to write a book on the history of Brighton's football finances, uh, going back to when the club was formed. So I've got all the data, and it's it's, it's one of many projects that that I'm uh, that I'm working on. Uh, and, and this is just going to be for my own amusement, as much as anything else. I, 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 I think it's a fairly niche market, isn't I, it? You, you pretty much took the words out of my mouth, Kieran. Really, I. I, I... I can't imagine there's going to be much of a queue for the signing for that one, but <laughs> there, there, will be, there will be people. I've seen some of the tweets that you get from Brighton <laughs> yeah. fans. I'm sure. I'm sure a history of. I'm sure, I'm, of course, it will sell copies, Kieran. Just not in South East London. No, no, no. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll launch it in a uh, in, in a vegan quinoa store in Brighton, and you know people will be you, queuing up around the block you, as usual. You won't have any choice, Kieran. It's pretty much the only sort of place you can launch it in Brighton these days. Exactly. Um, yes, yeah, so uh, yeah, we, we've sold Ben White for fifty million pounds. So I, I went through the historic records of the club, which. Fortunately, I happen to have already summarised on a spreadsheet. And it turns out that that, uh, that transfer uh, generated more money than every single player we had sold between the formation of the club in 1901 and the end of the 2019-20 season, which is wow. which is ridiculous. And uh, I'd just like to say, you know, we, we haven't talked football here. Good luck, Ben White, at Arsenal. Uh, we're really proud of everything you've done at our club, and uh, I hope you go on to a fantastic career uh, in uh, for England uh, and join a, a, a big club in a couple of years' time because we get 20% of the profits when you sold. Mm. And Any truth in the rumour that Arsenal paid part cash, part hummus? <laughs> That's what swung the deal in the end. I was going to say, I was, I've got quinoa written down, Kieran, which is funny, but you'd already, you'd already gone to the quinoa route, so... Um, and our final news story, Kieran, is an unexpected bit of joy for all you fans of the European Super League out there. Yes, yes, uh, yeah, and we've said this. Uh, yeah, it, it's a bit like uh, Freddy Krueger uh, in all the Nightmare on Elm Street films, of which I have seen every single one. Uh, it, it, it's back from the dead in the sense that uh, a Madrid court has ruled in favour of the three amigos. Real Madrid, Barcelona and Juventus uh, in terms of saying that the punishments that were being uh, directed by uh, UEFA were uh, 
uh, not not appropriate. They 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 could not be carried, um, and therefore um, uh, we've we've seen the likes of Perez, and we've seen a very very sniffy uh, press statement coming out saying that um, the, the Super League project is continuing, and 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 this they managed to do this with a straight face. They're going to work with governing bodies, leagues, fans, players, managers, clubs, UEFA and FIFA, i.e. absolutely everybody who they mm. completely ignored when they originally set up Super League. So um, it's not dead. The, uh, the, the English clubs have not... Uh, have not given up their shares yet, or, as yet. Although I, th- I think that's a a legal process that they're going through. Um, the and also they are claiming, uh, you know, Perez is claiming that by giving Real Madrid more money, which ultimately is is the objective of Super League, this is going to save European football. Mm. Which we've ascertained doesn't particularly need saving, to be honest, Kieran, does it? In, um... Not in that way, anyway. Uh, our questions, Kieran. Um, and our first question comes from Kenny Wheeler. And it, it starts with a, a sentence that you've facilitated, Joan. I, I don't think until we started this podcast, anybody would have dared to start any sentence with these words. Uh, Kenny Wheeler says, As a bit of a company's house fan myself... <laughs> Literally, I'm quite good at comedy cartoon double takes. I did about four when I saw. As a bit of a company's house fan myself, uh, I'd love to see you, you and Kenny at a party together. <laughs> uh, Kenny says, "I'm interested in how share allotments work for clubs such as Lincoln and Preston, who regularly allot shares as a form of drip feeding funds. Do share allotments dilute down overall shareholdings? And if so, is the dilution evenly distributed across all shareholders?" <laughs> right. That, we're, I'm we're sorry, starting, I wasn't, I wasn't we're starting at the top, aren't we? We start. <laughs> you're, you're a comedian. Is it, is it you always do you always start with your second best gag and you finish with your best gag? No, it's a bit more. It's a bit more complicated than that, Kieran. In an in an hour long show, because uh, <laughs> right. for a start, most comedians don't acknowledge that they have a second best gag, Kieran. They like to think of all of them as the best gags. Ah, uh, and it's just making me laugh the fact that you chuckled when I asked you the question. I just wondered if Kenny had inadvertently asked you a really hilarious share <laughs> allotment question, or you just just the sheer joy of life that you were sitting there in Sussex, married to a beautiful lady with a dog that adores you, thinking, "Here I am, answering a question about share allotments. I'm living the dream." See, so uh, once upon a time, Kieran, you you were running a nightclub in Blackpool. You had a baseball bat down the back of the bar, and now look at you living on a vineyard, answering questions for people. <laughs> <That's> who... <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, back, back. I guess back to the question. Um, in terms of what happens with Preston, ultimately, Preston North End is owned one hundred percent by Trevor Hemmings. So if if he starts off with 100% of the club and he issues some more shares to himself, he's still got 100% of the club. So, so from that point of view, there's not actually too much of an issue. And, and, and what Trevor Hemmings has done, and, and I have been contacted on a few occasions by uh, Preston fans to say, uh, you know, a lot of fans think he's, uh, he's, he's, uh, he's not one of the good guys. And I'm going, well, 
if somebody puts 50 million quid into your football club and he's not one of the good guys, how, how do you define a good guy? You know, 50 million quid is 50 million quid. Mm. And they're saying, well, we could have put more. Yep, yeah, Anybody can put more. I could put more money into my club. You could put money into yours. Um, but, you know, we've, we've also got other things in our lives. And, it's, and, and why, why should you prioritise a football club over everything else in your life? So I, I think some Preston fans are a bit harsh on the owner. Mm. Um, so he, as far as Preston is concerned, that's not an issue. When it comes to Lincoln, um, I went into Company's house this morning um, and I dug out the list of Lincoln City uh, Lincoln, Lincoln City shareholders. 114 pages uh, was wow. the list. Yeah, that's, that, of, that's, of that's a conversation starter, isn't it? Yeah. The names of every Just, single one of them. Yeah. Crikey. What size is the print? <laughs> it was small. It was small. We, we're wow. talking. We're talking no more than ten points. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's really good in the sense that it's it's indicative of a very uh, a very democratic club, and certainly, uh, you know, I've, I've got to know Liam Scully quite well, who's the chief executive, and Clive Nates, who's sort of the majority shareholder. Um, and they are certainly on the side of the angels, as far as I'm mm. concerned, because they do believe in in everything that you know, we've, we've tried to promote on the show. Um, if Lincoln City need extra money, uh, some of that will come from individual shareholders who tend to be the main ones. But also what we have seen with Lincoln is for those fans who um, didn't want to take a, a rebate in terms of their season ticket money, rather than just say, thank you very much, the club turned around and says, look, look, okay, it, it might not be a huge issue, but we're going to give you some shares in lieu of you turning down your rebate. So so what we've seen with Lincoln is that um, the number of shares has been constantly increasing. Now, if you start off to, to let's say you start off and you've got 10,000 shares out of 100,000, you've got 10% of the club. If it then issues some shares and you don't buy any more, then yes, your shareholding will be diluted. And that has been the case at Lincoln, but I don't think it's been to the detriment of uh, individual uh, shareholders because yeah, I've, I've got this list before me. If your name, for example, is Dave Barnard and you've got 23 shares out of 5 million, Mm. You've you know you've now got twenty three shares out of five and a half million. It, it's not actually make a blind bit of difference. So uh, yet yes, in uh, from from a mathematical point of view, uh, some shareholders will have a lower proportion, but they didn't buy the shares in the first place for uh, any form of financial return. It, it was it was out of love for the club. No, uh, I'm going to assume that Dave Barnard is a made-up name, Kira. Because yes, otherwise, good. Because yes. otherwise, we'll be getting a lecture again from Guy about the Data Protection Act. <laughs> yes, and how we shouldn't be randomly giving out information on a podcast that can be accessed by anybody in the world. Um, and well done, uh, Kenny, for answering that question. And I hope you noticed that you were alpha mailed halfway through it. You were properly slapped down by the governor because you might be a bit of a company's house fan, Kenny. But the governor was there this morning. He was there. He was at a company's house, and I, and, and I, the tone of his voice suggests to me, Kenny, that you weren't. Just, just, just listen and learn, Kenny. Um, our next question comes from Tom, 
in York. Now, unfortunately, there's got Tom, to be a Radiohead reference well, here, sure. Kieran, I'm afraid Tom in York has asked us a question before, and it, I'm quite chuffed to learn that you pay about as much attention to what I say as I say as I pay to what you say sometimes. Because when Tom in York asked the question before, he we went through the whole Tom York Radiohead <laughs> thing, which we we can't do again, unfortunately. Um, but Tom's question is an interesting one. Uh, Tom says, with a lot of footballers, managers seemingly moving clubs every few years, I've always wondered about how they go about sorting accommodation, etc. Remembering that odd situation where Mourinho was effectively living in a hotel while managing Man United. Do some clubs already have houses that they own themselves and then rent out to their players? Or do a lot of the top players just buy a house in the area and then sell it, rent it when they move on? I, I know... I know one thing Palace have to do. Palace are signing some exciting young people at the moment, but the first thing we normally say to any agent is don't check Google Maps. Just <laughs> just, just take our word for it. It's in London. Fulton Heath sounds lovely. Don't check it. No need to, no need to check photographs or any, any sort of postcode information. But it's, again, it's, what I like about this question, it's one of those basic things that we, we, we probably all have wondered at some stage. Do, you know, do, do clubs own seven or eight houses? Just offer them to players temporarily, or how does it work? Um, well, that that is uh, something. If if you've got a player, especially if uh, they're coming from overseas, they they won't be familiar with the area, so they effectively have some form of. Like was Finley just opening the door? Um, <laughs> there, there was there was they will effectively have a sort of a, a club minder to a certain extent who yeah. who will look after things. Uh, like this. Um, if, if we take the case of Liverpool, for example, uh, Brendan Rodgers uh, did have a house in Formby. Very, very nice house indeed. And uh, when he left and Jurgen Klopp came in, uh, the house was up for sale and Liverpool bought the house from uh, Brendan Rodgers and then uh, said to Jurgen Klopp, you can you can live here rent free. And, and I'm certain, certainly aware of, you know, football is quite a transient injury. Uh, so in, uh, it's an industry, even. Yeah. Um, and uh, you you do have players who move from place to place, and they will leave their old houses, and, and quite often uh, they will know somebody that's moving to the club because it's a small industry. You get to know people. You've got an element of trust with them, and quite often, you know, a player who owns a house will actually have that house being occupied by another player when 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 they both sort of move on. Uh, yeah, one moves out of the area, and one moves in. Uh, the last the last house. I was living in, in in Cheshire before we moved back down to Sussex. Uh, that was owned, or that was occupied by by a footballer, um, and we acquired it from him. So you know, it, and he he then moved to to Plymouth, but he only ended up here and he stayed in Plymouth for less than a year. So yeah, it, it is quite a transient injury uh, industry. I was mm. that right, mm. um, and uh, and I think this is for a discussion off air. Um, yeah, I'm fully aware of, of, should we say, some players that own two houses for other reasons. Yes. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. 
yeah, okay. Yes, we'll have that discussion off air, certainly. Uh, we've got quite a lot of things to talk about off air that we keep forgetting <laughs> to talk about. Maybe we should do an off air pod. I, I knew, I, obviously, I can't tell you uh, his name or the club he worked at, but I knew somebody who was a, a club fixer, as they call it, whose job was to sort out accommodation issues for uh, players, especially new players. And uh, he left at very short notice because he got a phone call from uh, a highly paid. Uh, player in the Premier League who complained that his his new house was was really really hot. Uh, so this friend of mine, the fixer, went round, opened a window, and then <laughs> left, and, and decided <laughs> the job wasn't for him anymore. Uh, and it was in the middle of a heat wave in August. <laughs> he said, literally, the player was going, "Oh, I, you opened it? That's wow." Um, Tom Sauvage. Uh, who could be Tom in York for all we know, but yeah. Tom Sauvage, I mean, that's a great name. You, it is. That's, it's a wonderful name. Uh, and it's also a very interesting question and quite germane to some uh, discussions we had very early on in the pod history. Uh, Tom Sauvage says, could one football team sponsor another? So, for example, where Everton couldn't give Berry money, could they have signed up to sponsor them? And similarly, could someone sponsor another team to help them with FFP? Uh, the simple answer is yes. Uh right. There's no reason, um, and you know, Tom you know, references the Everton issue. It, it was Bill Kenwright who who offered to yeah. to provide financial assistance rather than Everton Football Club itself. Um, so, so yes, conceptually that could be the case. Uh, we do have the uh, the fantastic example of England captain Harry Kane, who is for the second year running. Uh, he is sponsoring the front of shirts of Leighton Orient. Uh, with one of his favourite charities, which this year is called the Tommy Club, so mm. uh, you know footballers can do it. Uh, you know, and and hats off to Harry for for being so generous, uh, and also you know remembering his roots, you know, as to where he he started off his career as, as an on loan player, and, and I think it's an absolutely fantastic uh, piece of benevolence up from him. But yes, there, there's no reason why a club could not support another club. I think it would be a bit strange if that club was in the same league. Mm. Um, same division because you know, you know that could be deemed to be a conflict of interest when the two teams play each other, especially if it's in a, you know, a relegation decider or something like that. Um, but uh, other than that, you know, there's no reason why a Premier League club couldn't support a, an EFL club or a, or a club in Scotland or Spain or wherever. Uh, and what, for example, if Leighton Orient were to draw Tottenham or Man City or whatever club Harry Kane is at in the FA Cup, would you expect them to not wear that shirt for that particular game? No, well, because it's ultimately it, it's a charity which is being uh, is, is being given the publicity. Um, that, that there would be no conflicts of interest here. It's just fantastic that uh, Harry Kane's reached a, a financial agreement with Leighton Orient to say. Um, you know, normally you charge, let's say, fifty grand for front of shirt sponsorship. Um, I want to promote Tommy Club. I'm writing out the check on behalf of the charity, um, and uh, you know, everybody wins. Leighton Orient gets uh, additional money. Uh, the the charity gets gets exposure, um, and and Harry Kane gets to be seen for the good guy that he is. Mm. Our next question comes from Tom Knight. I I can't recall a pod where we've ever had three Toms. It's it's the sort of thing that amuses me. So you, you get your uh, you get your small your small cheer out of spreadsheets. I get look at that. I, just, I actually said to the cat, "We've got three toms." And, uh, she gave me a look and said, "Well, that's never happening to me, is it?" My, um, my uncle Terry had a night with Tom Pop with with three toms. Did he? Yeah. Oh. 
<laughs> that's 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 for another pod again. Yeah, that's a that's a pleasingly old fashioned. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a long time since the yeah. Look it up, children. It's a, a lady of the night. A lady uh, was the old a lady as my nan used to call them, ladies of negotiable virtue. Uh, uh, Tom has been <laughs> Tom has been wondering about managers' contracts. Got a lot of questions about managers this week, which um, suggests that guys either been paying a lot of attention or none at all. Um, <laughs> I can't quite work out which it is. Uh, but Tom says. I've been wondering about managers' contracts. Do you know how specific a manager's target and bonus pay are? So, for example, will there be a targeted table finish and each place above that earns X pounds? Will all Premier League managers have contracted bonuses for winning the league, finishing top four, etc.? However, unlikely, because it was Wenger, wasn't it, who, who talked about the fact that he should have a bonus for every season that Arsenal finished in the top four, let alone won something. But that's an interesting question from Tom. Yes, uh, contracts are significantly uh, incentivized. Uh, if, if we remember uh, Leicester City winning the Premier League in 2016, Claudio Ranieri famously uh, insisted on a £5 million bonus uh, should they win it, and Leicester quite happily signed off of that whilst they were mm. sniggering. That's never <laughs> going to happen, is it? Yeah. Um, and uh, a former gentleman of uh, your area, Tony Pulis, had a, I think it was a two and a half million pound bonus if Palace avoided relegation when, when he took over. That's that's the rumour, certainly, yes. Yeah, and, and that went for, uh, and that ended up in court, didn't he? Because yep. he, he left the club uh, before he was entitled to the bonus, but had somehow managed to persuade the club to give him the money in advance. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. It's it's not often, Kevin, that I cheer Crystal Palace, but I was absolutely delighted that they won that particular case. Yeah, uh, because uh, I'm uh, I, I'll, I'll say I'll say I'll say no more than this. I'm not Tony Pulis's biggest fan mm-hmm. um, for a variety of reasons. So so fair play to Palace for standing up in respect of that one. So we do see um, a, a series of uh, incentivized elements to a contract. Um, and it's very much the same for players. Uh, certainly, as far as Arsene Wenger is concerned, um, in, in all of the players' contracts, there are top four bonuses uh, for qualification. So that will also be the case in, in, uh, in that of, of managers. Mm. Uh, regular listeners will be aware that when I go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it means that I'm desperate to elaborate on that conversation and tell you <laughs> and tell you what I think about Tony Pulis, but there would be no point because Guy would simply cut it out. Uh, <laughs> let's add it. Let's add it to the agenda in the live show where yes, <laughs> uh, I used to. I I used to erroneously believe you were allowed to say what you wanted on stage until a lawyer came up to me during a show two years ago and said, you want to be really careful with that stuff you're saying about Prince Andrew. I went, it's fine, mate. I'm live on stage. I can say what I want. Except, <laughs> He said, I don't know where comedians have got that idea from, but you simply can't. The laws of the land don't cease to exist because you're standing behind the microphone. Oh, well, that's all right, because we know the royal family don't sue people. He said, again, I don't know where you got that information from. But yes. So, but luckily, I got in touch with him about six months later because I got a really the good Prince routine. Andrew or the lawyer? No, no, the lawyer, because I, oh, right. I got a really good routine out of the lawyer telling me I shouldn't be doing the stuff out of Prince Andrew. <laughs> I, I can't imagine any circumstances uh, in which I would... Uh, 
<laughs> being in the same room as Prince Andrew for any length of time. Um, our next question comes from Mark Jones. And I believe, Kieran, we've, we, we probably have answered the first part of this question, but I don't know if we've spoken about the second part of the question because Mark says, uh, we know that betting companies make vast amounts of money out of football. It seems to be one of those things we talk about on a weekly basis now. But do the bookies actually pay anything for the rights to use the fixtures in their shops and online? Uh, and also, and this is the bit I don't think we have covered, do foreign bookmakers pay the Premier League for using their fixtures? But we, This is a, uh, something you surprised me with a few weeks ago, because the Premier League don't actually – somebody else owns the copyright to the fixtures, don't they? Is that correct? Well, it, it's actually a company owned by the, the Premier League. There's a company right, called right. Football Data Co. Limited. Yep. And uh, its job is to monitor and sell the the, the key rights as far as fixtures. Um, and uh, in, it, it, it also has an exclusive arrangement with one of the, the big data companies. It's, it's sold the rights. You know, you've got the likes of um, Opta and uh, Statsbomb and so on all of whom are gathering information. But um, the the official information has been sold by Football Data Co. to, I think it's called uh, Sports Soccer Genius or something like that. Mm. Um, the, they do sell this, uh, this data to the betting companies because if you think about the nature of bets, we, we don't just these days gamble on results. Or I say we, you know, I, I don't tend to gamble full mm. stop. But, but um, so therefore... Um, you know what? What if is there is a disputed goal? You know, some, you know, sometimes the ball's pinged off three or four people. So it is the Premier League who makes that final decision as to who is the goal scorer, and the the betting companies buy that information in real time, for want of a better phrase. You know, oh, as, okay. soon, as soon as the uh, disputed goals uh, commission uh, makes a decision, that is relayed to the betting companies, and they pay for the privilege of that. And it's the same. You know, I think you can get now gamble on. You know, was a goal scored in in the first fifteen minutes, and then. Mi- minutes 16 yeah, to 30 yeah. so the official clock of the match that is also maintained by the oh, premier league and, and this can have implications for betting companies so there is a relationship uh you know it it, it generated 21 million pounds in 2020 you know, it doesn't seem a huge amount of money but ultimately it is you know it, it, it's money for data Mm. Um, it, it's money for spreadsheets, and if, if somebody wants to, uh, if, if somebody wants to give the the price of football spreadsheet twenty one million pounds, myself and Kevin, we're open to negotiation. Um, in respect of foreign bookmakers, um, I think it's a little less certain. A lot will depend upon whether those bookmakers are licensed or unlicensed. I think what we would find is that the Premier League would probably insist that if uh, there is a gambling company located overseas who are sponsoring a football club in the Premier League, then they would have to buy the you know, the, the data rights mm. from Football Data Co. So that, you know, that, that was a good way of enforcement. Though, um, If they are unlicensed bookmakers, anything goes. Yeah, my, my Uncle Terry was involved in an unlicensed bookmaker and you know, uh, that, that was always interesting in terms of the way that the odds were, were done. And, and he certainly never gave anything to the football authorities. Yeah, he, he wasn't one for licences in general, was he, your Uncle Terry? Not really, no, no. No. Yeah, well, I suppose getaway drivers don't tend to use... <laughs> I, I imagine he strikes me as somebody who probably liked a bit of fishing. He probably had a licence for that. He, he, did, he, did, he did like fishing. Well, because he, he, mm. Uncle Terry worked at... Uh, was it, the, it was the meat market, Smithfield Market, isn't it? Smithfield? 
in London. Well, your, your Uncle Terry's definition of a meat market could be very different to the rest of us. Yeah, Smithfield. It is a Smithfield meat market. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, un- un- Uncle Terry officially was there. And he uh, – because I, I, I was sort of uh, – you know, from, from about the age of seven or eight, I would – I would cycle to to the meat market, and there there was me who was about you know about three foot six tall with with half a you know half a lamb over my shoulder, normally delivering it to um, uh, me- members of the local constabulary as a uh, as, as a goodwill gesture from Uncle T. <laughs> that's that's yeah that's that's hardly the craze, is it? Given, no. given the old bill of backhander of two legs of lamb. Like, um, also, Kieran, I have to say, I, I, I'm not normally of a sensitive disposition, but you, you, you offered to sell used spreadsheets over in a podcast. I found slightly tawdry. Just, oh, you're, you're a man of standards, that's why, Kevin. I just use spreadsheets here. I just that's ugh. anyway. Um, Ricky Prince asked our next question. I mean, if Ricky Prince didn't have a, a relative who worked at uh, Smithfield Meat Market, I don't know who would have done. That's <laughs> uh, what an image of you. I just somehow just hear the Hovis music going on in the background. You thought for Jack's New World Symphony, da, da, as you over a shot of you cycling across the cobbles of London with half a lamb over your shoulder, cheerily delivering it to Dixon of Doc Green <laughs> while he ruffles your hair, goes, get out of here, you little scamp. Uh, but Ricky Prince's question is um, is a very interesting one. And again, it goes back right to the start of this pod. It's like you know, the bubble. When will the bubble ever burst? And Ricky says, in a, in a recent episode, Kieran mentioned football is going into a period of deflation in terms of transfer fees and wages. Has this happened before? As it feels like it's been continually growing since the 70s and particularly growing enormously since the early 1990s. If it is a first, will it bounce back or could we finally be on a downward trajectory of reducing money in football? Um, well, uh, in, in the most recent UEFA uh, benchmarking report, they said that spending in transfers was was down by a third across the whole of Europe. And had it not been for the Premier League, it would have been down by a half. So, so we certainly are in a, in a period of transfer deflation. Um, and transfers are normally linked to wages. Um, has this happened before? Uh, domestically, yes, it has. But it didn't happen in the Premier League. It happened in the EFL when the ITV digital TV uh, deal collapsed. Um, and, and clubs who had been sort of you know, signing players and, and agreeing wage deals on a, on a certain level of, uh, of uh, broadcast income coming in from ITV Digital all of a sudden had to, to retrench. So this has happened before and football did bounce back. Um, in terms of is it a, an ongoing long-term trend, um, I, I think it's unlikely. There's, I know people talk about the bubble bursting. I, I don't mm. think that will be the case. What I think we're entering is a, a period of much more modest growth or, or flatlining. Certainly, if we take a look at the uh, the Premier League's recent decision to roll over the, the TV deal with its senior partners, that's for the same amount of money as before. Um, we've seen the, the Italian deal is down by around about 5%. The, the French TV deal uh, is down substantially. So I, I think we are sort of plateauing. And, and that's got to be the case for 
uh, whatever product you're looking at, you, you cannot constantly generate revenues at a faster growth than, than the whole of the world economy. So um, we, we're, we're in for a period of more modest growth. But once they find the next golden ticket in terms of um, a, a way of, of generating revenues, and um, perhaps we'll get somebody on to talk about this in, in, in one of the guest shows because it sort of really sort of goes slightly above my uh, my head. Um, mm. But but they're now selling these sort of uh, digital uh, dig- digital landmarks. So uh, uh, yeah, we, we've seen the first ever tweet. That's been sold uh, digitally for an absolute fortune, oh, wow. and it could be that clubs. You know, yeah. What happens if Manchester City sell ninety three twenty? You know, when when Sergio Aguero scored that goal, yeah. Um, you know, they might be able to find some form of digital representation of that and sell that. So that appears to be a a new market which is opening, and it's certainly generating a lot of interest in investors in the states. There's other people saying, you know, oh, is this another classic South Sea bubble? Um, and actually, you're selling nothing at all, but you're just managing to hype it up. So, does that mean uh, Martin Tyler could uh, sell the Aguero? Uh, I won't um, as a because I, I met Kenneth Alston home once, classic BBC commentator who commentated on the 1966 World Cup final, who said that one of his great regrets was he didn't ever make any money out of. There are some people on the pitch; they think it's all over. It is now. Yeah, the the irony being that he was on a TV show called "They Think It's All Over," um, <laughs> which which we were unapologetic about. But it's it's you know if if he was able, I mean if Martin Tyler was able to to claim the ownership of that wonderful iconic piece of commentary, then he would make a lot of money, and and surely he'd be just as likely to be able to do that as the person who sent the first tweet would, wouldn't he? Uh, p- potentially, I mean, it, it's it's a it's a new area of of enterprise and. Uh, I, I know that uh, normally these things are sold via Bitcoin. Um, I'm, I'm, I have been talking to a, a Bitcoin expert because we've seen uh, quite a few clubs recently uh, mm. sign up for, for, for cryptocurrency deals. And again, it's uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at them. I'm not quite sure what, what's going on here. Um, so we, we'll try to get somebody on to explain how these things would work um, and uh yeah, but yeah, perhaps uh, yeah. It, it, it was for me. You know, I'm not a Manchester City fan, uh, but I will never forget that moment in football. And, and you know, Martin Tyler should should you know, should be rewarded for it. Surely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, our penultimate question comes from Alex Asinder. Uh, I hope I've pronounced that right, Alex. It could be a cinder, I suppose. But Alex says, I'm a Birmingham City fan for my sins. No, none of that. Birmingham City, one of the friendliest clubs I've ever been to. Um, I always feel an affinity for Birmingham because I just know that if I'd born in, been born in Birmingham, I'd, I'd have been a Birmingham City fan. Whatever city I was born in, I would have chosen the wrong team, essentially. <laughs> I would never have chosen the one that won everything, got all the glory. Uh, but Alex says, I'm a Birmingham City fan for my sins, and I know the club's ground sale to the owners rubs you guys up the wrong way. Doesn't bother me at all, Alex, to be perfectly honest. Kieran, <laughs> Kieran is really furious. So between the two of us, it does sort of rub us <laughs> the wrong way. But Kieran's far more rubbed than I am, to be honest. Um, Careful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it has been reported that after a ground inspection, there is a seven-figure repair bill before the ground will be deemed fit for the return of fans. My question is that being that we now lease the ground from the owners, who would foot this bill? Um, and he rightly points out that if he rented a house and the wall had damp, it would be the landlord's responsibility to fix it. So is this the case with a football ground too? 
It, it all comes down to the individual tenancy agreements. So, yeah, we, we've already referenced West Ham uh, and, and their tenants at the London Stadium, and all of the changes to the stadium have been footed by the landlord. So that that could be the case in respect of Birmingham City. Remember, effect, effectively, the landlord is is somebody that was originally connected to the club, although it now seems to be uh, the ground now seems to be sold to to another party possibly somewhere else overseas, um, without seeing the individual tenancy agreement. And even even I, with my love of company's house at six o'clock in the morning, uh, will probably wouldn't go that far as to, as to read uh, a, a, a landlord and, uh, and tenants agreement. Um, we, we'd have to see about what, we, what are the nature of the repairs? Are they deemed to have been caused by the tenant or are they general wear and tear? And that would have an impact upon it as well. Mm. You hear that, Kenny Wheeler, company's house fan, 6am in the morning. Not only was he at company's house, Kenny, he was there at 6am in the morning. No one else is allowed in at 6am in the morning. Our last question is from George Self, although given what we just talked about with uh, trademarking tangible assets, I would change that. I'd pronounce that selfie. So we, I'm going to make that George selfie so George can make a fortune out of claiming that everyone who's taken a selfie owes him a quid. Uh, George Self says, can managers be classed as a non-tangible asset and be amortised similar to that uh, of players? When the likes of Maurizio Pochettino was appointed Spurs manager, could the compensation paid for his services be accounted for like a transfer fee and amortised over the length of his contract? If not, could this be a loophole which could be exploited? Um, Well, it's an interesting question from George. At present, it is certainly not done that way because what we actually... Um, what what we treat uh, as the transfer fee that is amortised is the registration uh, certificate, which is signed for a particular number of years, and that gives the uh, the club who's just bought the player uh, the exclusive rights. And then some football rules come in, you know, along the lines of you cannot play for more than two football clubs in a year. Now mm. you can manage more to more than two football clubs in a year. Yeah, we, we've we've got we've got examples of that. Um, I think the the reason why we tend to see uh, these manager transfer fees being written off immediately is you know, if you sign a duff centre forward, you get lumbered with him for four or five years and you, and you can't shift him and you've got to go and pay the wages. So therefore, you, you have to amortise him over that period of time. Um, if you sign a duff manager, you just go and sack him. And, and to mm. give an example... Um, we, we've we've gone almost two episodes without mentioning Derby County, which which will cause listeners concern. But mm. I give you Gary Rowett. Gary Rowett was the the Derby County manager, and he was then headhunted by Stoke City mm. in May 2018, which, funnily enough, was about the last time that, that Derby's accounts were published, um, and uh, that. Stoke City paid compensation of around about £2 million. Now, I think Gary Rowett signed a four-year contract. So you might say, well, why can't we just amortise it? Well, it's because the the average life of a football manager in the championship is 14 months. And Gary Rowett lasted until January 2019. He was only there for nine months. So therefore, you know, because that is so common in football, uh, that, that uh, there's, there's no point in amortising the, the compensation fees because the chances are the, the manager's not going to be there long enough to, to set out to, to last out the, uh, the amortisation period. 
Mm. I think we should point out, uh, Kieran, as Guy is getting all legal-minded these days for some reason, uh, I think he must have watched the documentary, um, the, the, <laughs> the fact that Gary Rowett uh, left around the last time Derby published her accounts is pure coincidence. Just we're not we're not suggesting that Gary Rowett may oh, have no, taken no, the no absolutely yeah, unconnected. We're not, absolutely. not suggesting he may have he may have taken the printer with him, uh, or the the laptop or the calculator. This is that could be Mel Morris's excuse. Gary Rowett took the calculator. We've not been able to do the accounts <laughs> ever. As soon as Gary Rowett gives the calculator back, we'll be all, we'll be all over the accounts. Simple as that. It's just it's quite a pleasing image, isn't it? Really, where's the calculator gone? Oh, Rowett's got the calculator. Really. So he can't keep a job. Obviously, guy, we're not implying that Gary Rowett at any stage of his career has accumulated a calculator from any of his jobs. Uh, we don't know it's Gary Cassio Rowett now in the changing room, do This is why we're not getting paid any money. It's lawyers. Guy will actually be going on. So look, now what they've done, they've referred to Gary Rowett as Gary Cassio Rowett. If I give you 800 quid, will you tell me whether that's all right or not? <laughs> um, talking of 800 quid if you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod <laughs> uh, always free to airpod and that would be very kind of you uh, a pound will be fine thank you uh, go to patreon.com forward slash price of football and if you have a question you'd like answered on our next question show then please email us at questions at price of we'll be back on thursday we will have an interview with you uh, the tracy crouch interview will be taking place the week after but we're hoping to get the new ceo of swindon town um, and if not, we do have a couple of other very good options as well. But by hook or by crook, we'll have an interview for you, even if it's with Gary Cassio Rowett. <laughs> uh, if we can get him to own up to his <laughs> shocking calculator theft habit, that would be brilliant. And in the meantime, I will hand you over to um, none of this. All of this might be taken out, you know, legally. We could, <laughs> or people will say next week, what's happened to the pod? It's been taken off the air. Gary Rowett's lawyers got in touch. <laughs> they rumbled his calculator. Um, I'll hand you over to Kieran Maguire for uh, his customary and possibly last farewell. <laughs> well, we managed to get to 174 episodes before being taken <laughs> off air. Um, and, and I'd just like to, to thank everybody for all the support over the existence of the show. And if you'd like to show your support for the show um, and contribute towards our Casio fighting fund, um <laughs> If, if you could go to the uh, the, the Apple Podcast icon, icon, uh, put uh, make sure that you follow us, and if you give us a review, if you give us five stars, um, myself and Kevin, we don't understand why, but uh, according to producer guy, it helps us get up the table. Um, yeah, we, we we do try to get guests, and you know, one of the first things that people do when when you approach them is to say, "Well, if, if they've not heard of us, they they look they look up the charts, and we, we do, we, you know, we we bobble bobble around in the charts." Uh, at, at a reasonable level, and, and that is linked to some form of algorithm organized by Apple, and that's linked to the review. So it, it doesn't matter. You, you can say something rude about us, uh, you know, an obsession with calculators, for example. Um, you know, where's the cheapest place to get uh, meat from Uncle Terry? It doesn't matter what you say. <laughs> if you give us five stars, it helps us in the averages, it helps us in the table, and it just adds a bit to our credibility uh, you know, as, we, as we've always said, uh, we, we're not going to go down the route of charging for this show. We don't believe in that, uh, but it, it, uh, it just adds to our credibility with, with sponsors and advertisers and, and potential guests. Other than that, look after yourselves and we'll see you soon. The football season is almost about to start. Unless you're in Scotland, in which case it already has started. It's already started, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, and um, 
Yeah, we will see you soon, although knowing our luck, somebody will mention to Tony Pulis's lawyer, they say you should listen to that Price of Football. There's a really funny bit about Gary Rowlett's calculator. And Tony Pulis's lawyer goes, oh, I might give it a listen. Hang on a second. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. The Price of Football. Buy some football.